You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. I love this series. So I've been looking forward to this week. I made sure I stole the best psalm before Jimmy had a chance to. And, um, and so Psalm 73 is what we get to enjoy this morning. I love the Psalms of Summer series because even though I don't get music, I do get songs, right? Even if you can't play a chord, you get songs. You get the power of songs, the power of words, of, of poetry, of songwriting. And um, my, my history with trying to learn music is long. Uh, it goes back to when I was a four-year-old boy. My parents made me learn the violin, which is insane. I mean, I had good parents who were normally of right mind, but they, something went loose when they thought that a four-year-old boy could sit and learn. Like, I've got a four-year-old boy. He's not sitting for anything, um, especially learning an instrument that sounds terrible until you get good at it. And so that, um, that went on for a little while until I broke my violin. I can't remember if it was deliberate or not, but I busted it. And um, so then I moved on to the piano. I was seven years old. I couldn't play piano because the keys were covered in my tears. Uh, I had this, this lady um, who was teaching me who just yelled all the time. In my mind, she's like, she could have played Hitler in a movie or something, just like really yelly all the time. She speaks German in my memory anyway. And so I gave that up um, because it was hurting me too much. And then I moved on to, oh yeah, grade six, I, discovered, I think it was grade six, discovered girls. Um, or I, didn't, I always knew about girls and, and wanted girls, but in grade six I thought, I can get girls. And so I um, started learning guitar, because that's how you get girls. <laughs> um, everyone knows this. If you've ever been sitting around a campfire and someone's brought out a guitar, it's because they want girls. Um, and, or, you know, works both ways, whatever. Um, so I tried that, and I didn't, that didn't work either. Um, I got the girls, <laughs> Obviously, but um, I didn't. I couldn't play the guitar at all. And um, in year seven, I had to. It was my posh school. It was compulsory to be in the band, so I played the saxophone. Um, and by played, I meant pretend to play because I figured out that um, in all the performances, all I had to do was look across to Stewie, my best friend Stewie, who also played saxophone, and just mimic his hand positions and not and pretend to blow through it and no one could hear the fact that I couldn't play. So I would, just, I would, mime, I would mime through concert, um, concerts that way. Picked up guitar again later when I was older, again, to get girls. And none of it has ever worked. But I don't get music, but I do get songs, right? You can, even if you have no musical ability whatsoever, you, can, you get songs. You, you can hear a song or read a piece of poetry and you can say, yes. Someone gets it. Someone understands me. I know, ex- I know exactly what they are experiencing as they write this down. And I think this is why humans have always written poetry and songs. I think poetry, songwriting functions to bridge the gap between the things I experience and my ability to articulate those experiences, right? These things happen to us. Death, life marriage, sex, fights, right? Friendships. All of these things happen to us and they're, they're cataclysmic, right? They're, they're, they, they overwhelm us with their power 
and we can't articulate. We don't have the words to express what that experience is like. And so poetry, songs, and other things fill in that gap and bridge the gap, give us words that we wouldn't otherwise have to be able to explain these phenomenal experiences. And that is what the book of Psalms is to me and has been to people for 3,000 years, right? It is a book of songs that are written to help articulate the experience of God's people. A book of 150 songs that cover the full gamut of our experience when it comes to relationship with God and with one another. What it is to be a human. What it is to be a human in this life. And so I've given you a little uh, slip. Hopefully there's one near you. I want you to put this in your Bible, in the book, middle of the, the Bible. You'll hit the book of Psalms if you just turn to the middle. And I want to encourage you, at least during this month, and I guarantee if you do it, you will continue the rest of the year, just encourage you, each morning, for a minute, read a psalm. And just go through, from 1 to 150. You'll go through twice in the year, with a bit of grace for the times you forget, or are too hungover, or whatever, to read. Right. So, Do that, and you will start your day being able to say, this guy gets me. The writer, whoever did this, gets me. He gets my relationship with God. I love what John Calvin said about the book of Psalms. He said this in the 16th century. He wrote, I have been accustomed to call this book, the book of Psalms, also known as the Psalter, if you want to get technical. I've called this book an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not in here represented as in a mirror. The Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. That this book is anatomy, it's an anatomy of the soul. It just, it's, a, it, 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 it's a picture of what it's like to be human. So I love the book of Psalms, and I do read one each morning and find it so helpful, so centering, so grounding, so encouraging in my Christian life. And what I want to do this morning is just walk through this psalm and show you that that in this psalm itself, it kind of covers the breadth of our experience, the experience we have between us and God in this life. So in addition to... Um, categorizing psalms in different genres like we do with music. At a, back, back in my day, we had music stores, right? Record shops where you go and you sort through the, the, there's the indie and there's the punk and there's the hip-hop, right? Do they do this on the iTunes store? Yeah, you have genres, right? Okay, this step into this century. All right, in the iTunes store or whatever, on Spotify, you search through a genre. I want to see, I want a playlist of hip-hop or whatever. It's the same with the book of Psalms. We can categorize them into different genres. I've written them out for you in that little slip. But as well as that, another way, a simpler way of thinking about the different Psalms are what um, Walter Brueggemann, a a, a, a theologian, classifies as Psalms of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. So uh, I've got it up there on the screen. And, and, And so orientation is when a psalmist is seeing clearly who God is and who he is in God's world. So God is good and gracious and loving and steadfast and benevolent and sovereign and kind. And he sees that and it makes sense of his experience. I don't know if you've ever had this. These moments can be fleeting in this life. But a moment where you just, everything is clear. Everything God says about himself in the Bible, 
matches your experience. I had this the other night. I was laying out on the trampoline out the back of our house. The kids had gone straight to sleep. Um, I was laying out on the trampoline. The, the, the day was just turning from day to, to night. What's that called? Dusk, right? And I was just looking through these beautifully lush green leaves at the backdrop of the sky, which was going from deep blue to grey to, to, to night, right? And, and, and I know some people could look at that and just say, wow, look at the stars or look at the leaves. I was just looking at it and saying, wow, look at God. God is incredible. It's true what Psalm 19 says, the, the heavens declare the glory of God, and I was hearing it. I was hearing them pour forth speech, right? I was hearing them declare God's glory, and it made sense. I, that's orientation, I was seeing the world how it should be seen, and it's a little, just a little glimpse of what eternity is going to be like, where every bush right, reminds us of how great God is, or every conversation. So that's orientation. But my experience of it being a Christian is that more often than orientation, I experience disorientation. And I think that's reflected in the Psalms, right throughout the Psalms. The, the psalmist, the writer, the, the artist... Is, is wrestling with the tension of knowing that God is good, but experiencing life as crap, right? And so that experience of life being difficult disorientates us. It makes us doubt God's goodness, and it makes us doubt the value of being God's people. We're going to see that in this psalm a little bit later on. So orientation, disorientation, and then reorientation. Often you'll see a refrain at the end of the psalm where he's been through all this junk, but he says, but I know God's good. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I know you're good. Right? This is why Christians need to read the Psalms, because that is exactly how you feel. Right? If we're honest, that's exactly how we feel in different seasons of our, of our life and our faith. And Psalm 73 kind of takes us through the whole sweep Right? He only spends one verse on orientation before he gets disorientated, but we'll start there where he begins. All right? So in verse 1, he gets it right. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. If you want to have a right orientation of God and the universe, you start with him and you start with his attributes, right? who he is, what he's like. And he starts at the top. God is good. I know that we can be a little bit flippant about that and say God is good all the time or whatever, but he, he really means it. God is good. He's kind. He's gracious. He's loving. He's steadfast. He's benevolent. He, he loves us. He's good. Now, if you are a nerd like me, you can't talk about God being good without your mind going to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, one of the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm reading it with my kids at the moment, so it's on my mind anyway. But um, if you haven't read this book, if you haven't read the Chronicles of Narnia, then please stay until the confession time later in the service because that'll be a chance for you to confess your sin. And um, that's important. Repentance is then going and reading it, okay? I'm sorry, Lord, I haven't read the best book after the Bible. Now I'll go and read it. So I'm reading it with my kids at the moment, and, um, and I love it because um, C.S. Lewis, the writer of it, he, he called it a supposal. 
It's not an allegory per se. That's more like The Pilgrim's Progress, another great book. He called it a supposal. He invented the word, but he was like, suppose there's another world. And in that world, there are animals who can talk, right? And there are witches, and there are, oh, there are these fantastical creatures, gods and fairies and nymphs. And suppose in that world, that world that exists, that Jesus lived in that world. What would he look like? And C.S. Lewis said, Jesus in the land of Narnia is a lion, and his name is Aslan. He's the son of the emperor over the sea. He's the redeemer. And, um, and in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you have these four kids, the Pevensey children, and they've just come into the world. They haven't met, yet met Aslan. They don't know who he is, and they have a conversation with a couple of beavers, because animals can talk. I have a conversation with these beavers, and this, I'm just going to read it to you. This gets at uh, what I think the psalmist, his view of God is. So Lucy says of Aslan, is he a man? I'm not going to do the voices. I really want to, because I do the voices at home. Um, I'm just not that, no, I'm not, I'm not that confident. I'm not, t- beg me. Maybe some applause. No, no. In this beaver, I like to do a Northern English accent, maybe a Yorkshire accent. So he's like, Aslan a man? Like that. Certainly not. I'm not going to keep going. I don't feel, I don't feel good about it. Uh, I tell you, here's the king. The king of the wood, the son of the emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Next page. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or, just sell, or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Right? That is the picture that the writers of the Psalms spread over a thousand years of composition. That is the unified picture they have of God. He's not safe, but he is good. He won't be boxed in, but he is benevolent. He, 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 he is a judge, and that judgment is coming, but he's a just judge. He's a good king. And so I just want you to have that picture in mind. That's who God is, and that is who the psalmists know God to be, even in the midst of their disorientation. So check it out. Here's Asaph. We don't know much about who Asaph is, but he wrote this psalm for us, and God bless him for it. He's going to tell us how he got so disorientated. From that beginning place, God is good, and he's good to the pure in heart, through to the, the, the majority of this psalm, which is utter disorientation, right? He tells us, verse 2 and 3, As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What sent him off course? What disorientated him? 
disorientated him? It was envy. Envy is one of the most disorientating forces in the universe. Bertrand Russell, who was a very avowed atheist philosopher in the 19th century, he said, envy is one of the most powerful causes for unhappiness. Because envy is this. It's me seeing something that someone else has that I don't have, and it's me wishing that they didn't have what they have. So it highlights what I don't have, and it causes me to have negative emotions towards the person who has it. In Australia, we make this a national pastime. We call it tall poppy syndrome, right? Anyone who's good at anything, we don't want them to be good at that anymore. We just want everyone to be average. And we call it egalitarianism and everyone having a fair go. It's not. It's envy and it kills us. It makes us as a nation really weak. It makes us really weak. It's the reason we don't have any good leaders in our nation. So envy is this powerful force for unhappiness and also for disorientation. It makes us lose sight of how good God is and how good it is to be his children. And for, the, for, for Asaph, what, what's making him envious is he's seeing people around him who hate God and are fat. And you've got to remember, in 3,000 years ago, being fat was good. Now we're like, we're, I'm just trying to get fat, rid of as much fat as possible. Back then, they're like, give me fat. Because it's the difference between life and death. If you're fat, it means you've got food. And that means you're better off than most. So he sees the fatness of these people. He sees the prosperity. He sees the wealth. And he sees that they also hate God. They hate other people. And like that thing about cheetahs never prospering is a lie. Cheetahs always prosper. It's the best way to prosper, Right? Just look at big, big business for five seconds and you'll see the best way to prosper is to lie, cheat, and dishonor people, reduce people to things to be used. And he sees this and it causes him to be envious. It causes him to want what they have. So he says, he, he illustrates it. I'm going to read a whole chunk of this now, all right? This is what it does to him. From the beginning, fourth verse through the 12th, right? He says, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. The original there is their bodies are fat. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. And he looks at this and he wants it. And it disorientates him so much that he is willing to trade places with them, right? That means I'm willing to stop being a child of God so that I can be a child of wealth, just like them. This is the power of, the disorientating power of envy. It can make us feel like I will give up that treasure that Jesus talked about of the gospel if it means that I can have these treasures. I will give up eternity of treasures if it means I can just have some stuff. I don't know if you, you resonate with this. 
But if we're honest, like the psalmist is, I think most of us have felt this way from time to time. It gets so bad that the, the orientation that he begins with totally gets flipped on his head. So, so remember in verse 1, he says, Surely, 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 God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then this envy so disorientates him that he doubts God's goodness and he doubts whether it's worth being good. Doubts God's goodness and doubts whether it's worth being good. So in verse uh, 13, I think it is, and 14, he says, Surely in vain, just tearing his clothes, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. It's been a waste of my time to worship God, to be godly to exercise godliness, to wash my hands in innocence. It's been in vain to pursue purity. It's been in vain, because what has it got me? New punishments every morning. Praise the Lord. And then he looks out and he sees all these people who don't want to be pure, and they've got everything they want. What's the point? Envy is so disorientating that it makes us doubt God, God's goodness and the value of being good. It makes us think, maybe if I had the chance, I would trade this in to get that. I don't know if when you became a Christian, it was kind of on the basis that things would get better. But I, that's not my experience. That's not my experience. That's not the experience of most of the Christians who have ever lived in the last 2,000 years. Most of the Christians who have ever lived have been persecuted and killed for being Christians. So I know who promised you that life is going to be awesome, but they don't know history at all or the experience of most of the Christians alive today. Now, yes... Praise God, there are seasons where we have good orientation and we, and we live in, in a season of abundance and of blessing and of, and, and of, 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 um, of, just, of joy and enjoyment, right? Like we, we're a season where we're lying on the trampoline and looking at beautiful things. But if it's your expectation that that's going to be your whole Christian life or even the majority of your life, then you are mistaken. Living in this broken world, in this present darkness, right? It's disorientating. And here's the encouragement, right? If you're here today and you're like, yeah, I know that feeling. I'm, I know the disorientated feeling. I know the tension of living between what I know about God and what I know about this life. Then be encouraged. Because people who have chucked it in don't have that tension anymore. They're just like, eat and drink for tomorrow we die, right? No tension anymore. If you're living in the tension, then you're living the Christian life. That's the point. So our friend Asaph here, he's, he's disorientated. He's, 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 he's doubting God's goodness. He's doubting the value 
of being good. And what I know about disorientation is that it, it varies from person to person. If we took a, a survey here, it, it would vary in terms of how long we experience this for. Some people, it's just a couple of hours on a Monday morning and they feel like God maybe hates them and then, but they get over it by the afternoon. Some people experience it for months. Some of us live through years of this in spiritual depression. Not sure if God is good and if there's any value in being one of his children. We don't know how long this was for Asaph, right? He has just given us a bunch of verses about how he feels. That might have taken him a year before he gets back to reorientation, but he's going to take us there. It might have been hours, I don't know, but he does begin to reorientate himself. And so at verse 21 and 22, this is what he says. This is sort of a confession. He says, When my heart was grieved, speaking to God, when when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He says, envy, what envy does, if you entertain it long enough, it turns to bitterness. It embitters you. Embitters you towards your circumstances, towards your, I don't know, wife, kids, friends, job, God. It embitters you and that Bitterness is a numbing agent. I don't know if you've experienced this, but after a while it just numbs you towards the good things in your life. And this is what he says. I, I, I became senseless. I was numb. I was ignorant. I, I, for, I forgot who you are and how good you are. I was a brute beast before you. I was like a, one of those animals in Narnia that isn't a talking animal. They're, they're just brute beasts. And so he confesses this to God, and this is the first step on the way back to orientation, right? Confession. I've 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 got you wrong. I've doubted your goodness. And then the game changer comes, all right? Verse 16. When I but when I thought how to understand this, right? The tension, the disorientation, the envy, the the way that cheaters always prosper. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It was puzzling. I didn't get it. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. Verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Here's what's going on. He says, I went to the sanctuary. And this is code in the Old Testament code that they got and we don't. But the sanctuary is just the place where God dwells in the Old Testament. In the Old Old Testament, God dwells in his temple, in the Holy of Holies, in the sanctuary. This is where you go to be with God. That is not the case for us, praise God. We don't go to a building to meet with God, right? We don't need a priest to mediate between us and God. We have a temple and it's our body. Our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells within us. And so we meet with God when we meet with God. We meet with God when we open his word. He reveals himself to us every time. We meet with God when we pray to him, not through some other agency, but just directly to God by the Spirit through the Son. We meet with God in his sanctuary. And I don't want to totally discount coming to a building. When you gather with 
God's people, you meet with God. It's part of the agency God uses to orientate us. This whole church service is about orientating us. We want to have a right picture of God so that we can go out into the week orientated to make all of life all about Jesus. Right? So all of these things are how we meet with God in his sanctuary. And he says, when I met with God, I saw things clearly. I was orientated. I remembered he is good, gracious, benevolent, kind, loving, steadfast. And these people who I'm envious of, who have everything they want, fat bellies, harems of wives, right? Businesses that are booming. These people have it for a heartbeat. And then the judgment comes. And he remembers that Aslan is not a tame lion. He remembers that Aslan is not safe. He remembers that God is just as well as good. And to us, listen, everyone just look right at me, because I know in our context today, this is so, so un-PC. Like, like, oh, God, as a judge, we don't don't really want to edit that bit out, right? That's the Old Testament God when he was angry and then he grew up and went through adolescence and now he's Jesus and he's sort of this grandfatherly, avuncular kind of figure who grants wishes. That's not who God is. God is a just judge. And here's what you need to know. Most of the people in the world who are Christians today are banking on this because they're not kicking back in Caroline Springs, chilling on holidays. They're being tormented. They're being tortured. Their their daughters are being sold into slavery. I tell you what, if you have an eight-year-old girl who you have raised day to day, who then gets abducted and sold into sex slavery and is raped a dozen times a day, then you're banking on this fact. God is a judge and a judgment is coming. Because I can't get that guy he lives in Florida. I can't get him. I can't, I can't kill him. I want to kill him. God is a just judge and no one gets away with anything. The Bible, Bible tells us every careless word will be judged. Everything on the spectrum from the careless word to the rape of a 12-year-old. Every single act, thought, word, and deed is judged. And and Asaph goes, it's reorientating to remember that those guys, those guys who hate God and hate their fellow human beings and treat people as commodities rather than image bearers, their day is coming. And the judgment will be both swift and just. No one will get anything they don't deserve. It's reorientating to him. He, he remembers God is good, but he's not safe. He's loving, but he's not tame. God is our sovereign judge. And so he, he calls to mind uh, what every... Every Old Testament believer knew about it from Deuteronomy chapter 32. Right? It says, um, God says to his people, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. 
In due time their foot will slip, their day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. Is that just Old Testament angry God? No, exactly the same thing in Romans chapter 12, a beautiful God, book about the, the grace of God. Romans 12:19 said to persecuted, dying, tortured Christians, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So he knows this, and it gives him a little bit more orientation. And then he gives us a little picture of what we know far more than him, right? We know there's something that we know much more about than Asaph did, and that is about God's gracious judgment. He gives us a little picture of it. Let me, let me read it. In verse 27 to 28, he says, Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of your deeds. In verse 23 to 24, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me to glory. He has this picture of those who trust God being sheltered from his wrath and ushered into his presence. You will take me to glory. You are my refuge. And what everyone here knows, if you're a Christian, what you know and what you need to be reminded of is that yes, the judgment of God is coming and no one gets away with anything. And yes, you deserve that same judgment. And you can play games with one well, of those bad as Hitler. All of that is meaningless. The day you were born, you were deserving of judgment. But that just judgment, if you're a Christian, that just judgment has already fallen and it's fallen on God's own Son. That's what happened at the cross. When Jesus died... The wrath of God was satisfied. When Jesus died, that wrath that is coming against you because of who you are and what you've done fell on Jesus instead and was satisfied. There is no more wrath left for you. It was all soaked up by him. So that's why we can say with Asaph, judgment is coming But after judgment, you will take me into glory. It's a beautiful picture of God the Father taking Asaph by his right hand. It's a beautiful picture of intimacy. If you've got a, if you're in a meaningful relationship with someone, you know what that's like when you hold hands, right? Even after many years and things have kind of dried out a little bit, you hold hands and it means something. It means I'm with you. It means I trust you. Yesterday I spent the morning yelling at my kids in a really sinful way. I had to spend the latter part of the day apologizing, repenting, repairing relationship with them because I screamed at them. I when I when I yell at you, I'm at about thirty percent, right? Yesterday with them, I hit 90, and it's loud. Like it's really, that was 20%, right? It's loud, and it scared them. Both of my kids were scared by me, and I hate that. 
And so that night I had spent some time trying to repair that relationship. And then I was sitting with Judah reading a story with him and we read moderately scary stories to them because we want them to know that life can be moderately scary as well. And um, C.S. Lewis has an essay on this if you want to read more, why we should read fairy tales to children, right? And not the modern sanitized version, like the old horror movie versions, right? And um, I was reading something to him and and it was so meaningful for me because I knew that he was scared by me during the morning. But at night as I sat with him, there was just a point where the story got a little bit scary and he just reached over and held my hand. And I, it was the best thing in the world because it let me know that he wasn't scared of me. He, he was comforted by me. He, was, he trusted me. Now, if, if that's true, if, if my kids enjoy holding my hand even though I'm a bad father who scares them and gets things wrong all of the time and needs to repent, then how much more with a perfect, good, glorious, sovereign, benevolent, covenant-keeping father? And what I love even more than that, where the illustration falls down, is where it's not us grabbing his hand. It's God taking our hand. You hold me by my right hand. And this is a massive leap for Asaph in reorientating his heart, his mind, his vision about who God is and who he is in God's world. And so he remembers God is a judge, but he's also steadfast in love. So here's the thing, right? I'm at the end of my time. I'm trying to get much better at being quick and brief. Psalm 73 for me is a great comfort because Asaph gets me. He gets how I feel a lot of the time. He gets the tension of living in this world. He gets the tension between what we know is true about God and what we experience in this life. And the bit that gets it best, the bit where he gets most clear, most orientated, most, just most clarity about what this whole thing is about is what I want to end with, okay? Verse 25 to 26. I'm just going to leave this up, and you would do so well to memorize these two verses. He says to God, Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and my portion forever. Now quickly, this is not what he's saying. He's not saying, I can't enjoy anything apart from God. It can only be him and I've just got to just box him off and he's the only desire I have. He's not saying that. For me, right, in heaven, I believe my mum's in heaven, in paradise, waiting for Jesus to come back to receive her resurrection body along with me and every other believer. I believe she's there. I, I desire her. Right? I miss her a lot. I, I want to get to know her. So I have that desire. On earth I have my wife, my kids, my church, these things I, I desire. I have these things. But what he's trying to say is these things can fail us. Right? Relationships can fail us. Children can fail us. 
Finances can fail us. Possessions, everything we have can fail us. There's only one thing that will never fail us. And that's why he says, whom am I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, right? My physical stuff, the things of this world, and my heart, my, my emotions, my relationships, my, my, my spiritual life, these things can fail. They can run out. But God never runs out. Two most important words in this psalm. But God. When you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, right? When you are experiencing the tension that he has been talking about, this is what you need to remember. But God. We are the product of our generation, and so so often we think, well, i just got to get better at something. I've got to have better self-esteem. I've got to learn a new skill. I've got to lose a few pounds. I've got to do some marriage counseling, right? All those things might be good, but they're not the answer. The answer is, but God. Because everything else may fail, but God never fails. God never abandons us. God never forsakes us. God never forgets his covenant with us. And so, here's how I want to end. I want you to know that in the midst of the reality of this life, you can trust God. That in the midst of the reality of the life, this life, right? Like in the midst of loneliness, you can say, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In the midst of marriage breakdown, you can say, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In the midst of children who are wandering away from you and from the faith and from the law, right? you can say, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Or in the midst of unemployment, or in the, in the midst of being broke, or bankruptcy, or cars that break down, or bodies that break down. Right? In the midst of terminal diagnosis, you can say all of these things are true, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion, not for today, not for next week, but forever. And everyone in this room fails the test. Every one of us fails to exercise faith in God in the midst of suffering. So here's what this is. Here's what every psalm and every song we sing is. It's not a statement of fact. It's a prayer. It's a prayer. It's a prayer to God saying, Lord, this isn't true, but I want it to be. So I'm going to pray for us now that this would be true of us. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we confess as a church that we put our trust in things that fail us. We put our trust in our bodies, in our flesh, in being in shape or being good looking or, I don't know, having strength. We put our faith in our heart, in our ability to persevere, to have courage to, I don't know, to love, to be nice. But our flesh and our heart fail us. 
And so I pray for this church, for these brothers and sisters, for myself, that when that day comes, when that time comes, when our heart and our flesh fail us, I pray that we would be able to say with Asaph, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You are enough. If my wife leaves me, you are enough. If my little children die, you are enough. If I lose my job, you are enough. If my boyfriend cheats on me, you are enough. You are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Please make this more and more true of us, day by day, week by week, as we put our trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.